Well, it is good to be back here at Grace, back in Stillwater, uh, just driving in. I have so many fond memories of this city, have fond memories of those early days that Shane was talking about. Um, Yeah, the overhead projector, that was cutting edge back then. Uh, I think I came here thinking I knew so much about church planting and uh, realizing very quickly how much I did not know. I also came, uh, when I moved to Oklahoma, it was the first time I'd ever lived here, uh, I thought I knew a lot about Oklahoma. I mean, I knew that it had become a state in 1907. I knew that there were three main cities, Tulsa, Oklahoma City, and Stillwater, right? I knew that there are two main businesses, oil and gas and college football. I knew that uh, Garth, Reba, and Woody were all from, they're all Okies, right? So I thought I knew Oklahoma. What I didn't know was some really important things in Oklahoma's history. I didn't know anything about the Tulsa Race Massacre. I didn't know anything about the Osage Nation murders in the 20s. And I thought I knew about the Dust Bowl, that massive drought in the 30s. But I've also learned a lot more about that. For instance, did you know that over 2 million people were forced off their land during the Dust Bowl? Which is not just in Oklahoma, but throughout the Midwest. And that during that time, there there were plagues of locusts and a plague of rabbits uh, as a consequence of the drought. Um, The documentarian Ken Burns did a whole documentary series on it. He called the Dust Bowl a 10-year apocalypse. Woody Guthrie's family thought it was the end of the world. I think one of the most interesting things about the Dust Bowl is that it was largely man-made. Uh, the people that had been farming it had overcultivated the soil and they had turned it to dust. And so while the, the drought would have been bad, it was made 10 times worse because of all that dust that got everywhere and into everything. And so in some ways, the Dust Bowl was a natural consequence, even a judgment of sorts for greed and poor farming techniques. Well, in 1 Kings 17, we also see a drought that was a judgment, uh, but a much more direct judgment. We read about it. We're going to read the first six verses. So if you are able, please stand for this reading of God's word. Now, Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishba in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him Depart from here and turn eastward and eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Please be seated. Elijah's drought 
was as much spiritual as it was physical. And uh, we're going to try to answer three questions today as we look at this passage a little deeper. We're going to ask the question, how did this drought happen? Why did it happen? And then what can we do to end a drought? Because it does eventually end. So why, how, why, and what can we do? How did the, the first question, how did the drought happen? Well, the, the simple answer is that this drought happened because Elijah prayed. Now, in some of your Bibles, you have a, a heading, a, a sort of chapter heading that says, Elijah predicts a drought. But that's not quite right. He doesn't just predict it like, you know, you're predicting what the stock market's going to do. No, he prays for it to happen. Now, it may not be obvious from this text because he just sort of proclaims to King Ahab what's going to happen. But we get a little more light in another part of Scripture. In James chapter 5, James writes, The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain. See what James is saying here? He's saying that Elijah made this drought happen, right? That he prayed fervently and God answered his prayers. Now, of course, that was because God also wanted it to happen, right? God answers our prayers according to his sovereign will. But according to the Bible, Elijah's prayers, were the, they were the effective cause of this drought. And notice this, that this is one of God's prophets prophesying judgment against his own nation. Right? This is not Jonah uh, crying out against Nineveh, the Assyrians, that God is going to destroy them. This is not Isaiah prophesying the doom of Babylon. No, this is, this is God's chosen people, Israel, who are going to suffer. And imagine how awful it would be to not have water for three and a half years, especially in an agrarian society, right? Uh, the rivers and lakes would have dried up. The, the crops uh, would fail. Many of your animals would have died. Probably some, if not many, of Elijah's friends and neighbors died or got very sick from having no water. And this is important, right? Because God has never promised that as his people that we would not suffer or die. Or that we wouldn't be denied the basic necessities of life. God never promises us that we'll not go thirsty in this life. His promises are much deeper. But this promise, this drought here, it seems excessive, doesn't it? A three and a half year drought here, destroying our economy. God, why? So second question, why did this drought happen? Well, Ryan talked in a sermon last week about the state of Israel in Elijah's day. And kind of the key verse for us is back in uh, chapter 16, verse 30, when it says, Ahab, 
the son of Amri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Uh, Ahab the king, saying he was worse than all the kings before him. How, how bad were those before him? Uh, have you ever read the book, The Greatest Christmas Pageant Ever? It's one of my favorite opening paragraphs in a book. Yes? It sounds like this. The Herdmans were absolutely the worst kids in the history of the world. They lied and stole and smoked cigars, even the girls, and talked dirty and hit little kids and cussed their teachers, took the name of the Lord in vain, and set fire to Fred Shoemaker's old broken-down tool house. Herbans were the worst kids, and Gladys, the youngest, was the worst of all the worst. Well, Ahab is the worst of all of the terrible kings at that time in Israel, right? He marries Jezebel, a foreigner, who's, of course, strictly forbidden from marrying outside of Israel. But not only does he marry her and she's a Baal worshiper, but he willingly becomes a Baal worshiper as well. He turns Israel's heart away from God. He oversees child sacrifices. That's how bad he was. But again, why send a drought? Right? Because this would not have just affected the bad guy, Ahab. Right? It affected everybody. Couldn't, couldn't God have just like made Ahab a leper? I mean, he's, he's done that. Well, first of all, we need to understand how sin works. Right? It, because sin doesn't just hurt me when I sin. It hurts the people around me as well. It's been said that, um, that an alcoholic's disease affects around 100 people, right? From the family members around them to the, the co-workers they let down to the friends that they desert. If that's true, my guess is that a pastor who has a moral failure, who has an affair, probably affects like somewhere around 500 people, right? Not only their family, their colleagues, but all the people that they've ministered to now who are now asking, well, was it all a lie? Right? We want to pretend that our sin only affects us, maybe, maybe our spouse. But the truth is that just as grace is communal, so is sin. And all of Israel is paying for Ahab's evil. Right? They are included with the king. Many of them may have followed him, in Baal worship and the evil things he was doing, but even the ones who didn't were affected by this judgment of God. But also, why the drought? Well, the drought is very, it's a very specific judgment. But it doesn't just appear out of nowhere. It's actually been, was prophesied hundreds of years before. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 11, when God was giving the law to Moses, listen to what he says. He says, uh, and he's prophesying. They haven't even gotten into the promised land, right? But he's prophesying, when you get there, right, take care lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you. And listen to this. He will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain and the land will yield no fruit and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. 
This is a fulfillment. This is a fulfillment of prophecy. But the reason there was a drought even goes deeper than that. Because it was directly confronting Israel's main sin, which was what? Idolatry. Worshiping other gods. See, the exterior drought matched Israel's interior condition. God was in effect saying, he was showing them that when you hunger and thirst for other gods, you are going to die of thirst yourself. And God sends Elijah to call them back to him. Now, even Elijah's name was a rebuke to Israel. Elijah's name means, my God is the Lord. It's another way of saying Yahweh is the living God. You see, Baal, on the other hand, was not a God who lives. Even the people who worship Baal didn't believe that he, he didn't think he was alive all the time. See, they, they thought of Baal, he was the God of rain. And so during the rainy season, well, Baal's alive and working. But during the dry season, he's dead. He's not able to do anything. And so this drought was in some ways a direct shot at the Baal worshipers. Right? It's the third year of no rain. Where's your God? What's he going to do? Where's your God now? But Israel's God, Yahweh, is an all-the-time God. Right? He's God rain or shine, day or night, good days and bad days. Many people in Elijah's day could not comprehend how God could be everywhere and all-powerful. That's why they were constantly inventing new gods for this season or this occasion, right? Now, I'm not sure we're all that much different today, are we? I mean, it's still hard for us to imagine how God could be good in the good times and the bad times, right? When something really great happens, we say, what? It's a God thing. But what about when we get cancer, or a child's in the NICU. Is God not there? Is he still God? A drought happens when we stop trusting God with every part of our lives. So last question. What can we do to end a drought? How do we bear up when life seems dry? right? And we're thirsty for something, but nothing seems to satisfy. Well, it's no accident that in the New Testament, God pictures himself as the source of water, right? Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And what Jesus is doing here is he's making a very exclusive claim, right? You have to come to me and put your faith in me alone if you want to be satisfied, but in doing so, you also have to give up all of your other idols. Right? Your idols of success, of a perfect life, of everyone liking you, of, of the ideal romantic love. Right? Because this doesn't work to try to put your faith in me and lots of other idols, lots of other gods. I'm exclusive. 
You can't have me and all the other idols. You need to have just me. None of those, none of those other idols will satisfy you anyway. Only Jesus will. And that's really the way the drought in Israel ended, right? When God very publicly triumphed over Baal and Elijah killed the prophets of Baal, God was graphically demonstrating to Israel to prove to them that they only needed him, that idol worship was not only futile but destructive to them. They needed to root it out of their lives. There's a couple in my church uh, they have a 20-year-old daughter living with them. And this couple has been coming for, they're fairly new. They've come in for the last two years. But they've been coming faithfully. They both professed faith in Jesus and they joined the church. Uh, but their 20-year-old daughter does not go to church. Right? She, doesn't have, she doesn't have Christian friends. She doesn't really do anything religious, like read the Bible. Um, but my friend was telling me that uh, this daughter, uh, that the father told me that the daughter's really struggling, right? She's, she's not motivated to work hard. She's struggling with her sexuality. She's, she doesn't have friends her own age because she's afraid to put herself out there, afraid of rejection. And he told me that when he's talked to her about his faith and how it's changed her life, she's kind of listened, but then she says, yeah, but, but God isn't very close to me. He doesn't feel real to me, and he's let me down. And the father sort of took that as, okay, that's, that's the situation, and if God doesn't feel close to her, that's unfortunate, but, you know, what can you do about it? And I said, man, that is like saying, I'm hungry, but there's no food in the house, so I guess I'll starve. <laughs> See, the problem is not the lack of food. The problem is, not going to where the food is. You need to get to a grocery store, a restaurant, right? And it's the same way with God. God is not just some mystical connection that if once you wish upon a star, he'll, start, he'll appear and start talking to you, right? You have to go. God reveals himself in very, some very specific ways, in ordinary ways, Right? He's found in the Bible. He's found in the worship of his people, in the preaching of his word, in the bread, and in the wine, in the community of other believers. See, she's dying of thirst because she won't go where the water is. She's not the only one who's thirsty, though, right? You know, as I'm closing in on 50, I... I'm starting to think about the future more, thinking about that time when the church finally sets me out the pasture, right? Says, you're too old, we want younger people, and I say, fine, I'm tired of going to meetings anyway. But I'm concerned, what am I concerned about? Money, right? Am I going to have enough when I'm 70 or 80 years old? And when I think about it, I... I started to get anxious. And what is this coronavirus anyway that's messing up my retirement accounts? And, and I get anxious and I get worked up and joyless. I'm thirsting for security. <laughs> but I'm never going to find it in money, right? 
I will find joy and peace in, in Jesus who will take care of me in my old age. You know, 16 years ago yesterday, we started this new church. And contrary to popular belief, we did not start this church to be the, the place of right doctrine, right? You know, if there's anything I've learned in 20 year, 21 years out of seminary, it's that no one has the corner on doctrine, right? And I am often wrong. <laughs> we started this church to be a place for people who are living in a dry and weary land. For unchurched people who didn't know the joy of what it was to be a part of a loving group of believers. For people who were burned out by joyless and, and man-made rules religion. And, and my goal was that they should know Christ and Him crucified. That's the only way to get your thirst quenched. So every week we talked about Jesus and him crucified. Because on the cross, remember one of the last things that Jesus said? What does he say? He says, I thirst. And yes, it was a physical thirst, right? He had been through torture and agony. And he was thirsty. But he was, there was also a much deeper meaning to what he was saying. Right, Because as he hung on the cross, as the punishment for our sin, he was being cut off from the Father and from the living water of God's Spirit. And when you realize that Jesus became thirsty so that you might have a drink, he became the drought so that you might have springs of living water through you, it changes you. That changes you. Makes you eternally grateful. Makes you want to see everyone around you get the same living water from the only God who lives. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you're a God who is always with us. And that you're there even when we don't feel you. That your love is constant. That there's no condemnation for all who are in Christ. Father, we thank you that you do quench our thirst when we need it. You give us the living water so abundantly. Father, may we find our joy and our hope in you and you alone. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.